Welcome to Passing Judgment. This is a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and it is the end of 2021. And Passing Judgment's co-host and I, Joe Armstrong, are going to talk through all the big legal and political stories of the year. Joe, I now feel like I oversold it. Many of the big legal and political stories of the year. Joe, thank you for being with me, and thank you in advance for doing a lot of the heavy lifting today, and Happy New Year to you. Happy almost New Year to you too as well, Jessica. Yes, this is our 17-hour-long compendium of every single thing that happened in the year that was 2021, and I kid, I kid on that. But there are some big stories that weren't talking about. It was a very complex year in law and politics, and there certainly were a lot of things that happened in between, as our catchphrase goes. It was a year of chickens coming home to roost, both legally and politically, and that many of the stories of 2021 were tied to events from the prior year. The January 6th insurrection was a direct result of the former president's refusal to accept the results of the 2020 election, the verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd, the three men convicted of murder of Ahmad Arbery, and the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse all stemmed from events that occurred in 2020. The Biden administration's announcement to pull out of Afghanistan after 20 years was the end game of America's longest war. And we haven't even yet mentioned the other Supreme Court news or the pandemic that overshadowed all of these stories. So, Jessica, with the benefit of a bit of a year's worth of hindsight, let's dive right in here. 2020 got started with an event the likes of which we've never seen in our country. I know you and I, Jessica, watched this happen live, as did most of our country persons. After two months of denial of the results of the 2020 election by then-President Donald Trump, on January 6th, the day that Congress was scheduled to meet to certify the results of the election as prescribed in our Constitution, Trump and others spoke to a crowd of his supporters on the ellipse near the White House that morning. That crowd then marched to the Capitol, where they violently sacked the building and five people lost their lives. It has been almost a year now, Jessica. Can this event be viewed as anything other than a clumsy sort of coup? For me, I'm not sure if it was that clumsy. It feels increasingly, as more and more information comes out, that it was actually rather premeditated. And maybe we should talk about it in terms of two parallel attempted coups. There's what happened behind the scenes in the Trump administration. There's what happened in terms of high-ranking officials and members of the Department of Justice trying to what I would call, and I think that Fiona Hill described it as this as well, a attempt at a self-coup. And then there are the people who stormed the Capitol. And maybe that was a little bit clumsy, but yes, I think the most appropriate way to describe it is an attempted coup. And Joe, I just go up and back about whether or not Democrats should spend a lot more time explaining to people that the former president and his allies, again, I believe really did attempt a coup or a self-coup, or whether or not Democrats need to spend more time focusing on the things, frankly, that affect our daily lives, like the kitchen table issues. But it is just amazing to me that it happened, and it happened right before our eyes, out in the open. Okay, so here we are. What is the status of that congressional committee? You said something about Democrats. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't be investigating this, or maybe they shouldn't be dwelling on it, but they are investigating it. And what's the status of that committee? 
Yeah, and I think, look, we absolutely need to investigate it. I mean, Congress has investigatory authority, and they need to look into this attempted coup. So what's the status? They have gathered some evidence, a lot of which, frankly, I think, you know, it's one of those situations where we probably know a great deal already, and it's quite troublesome. And they're waiting for more information. So we know, for instance, there are people like Steve Bannon, and Mark Meadows, who really are not cooperating with subpoenas. And this is something that, Joe, we've talked about on the podcast throughout the year, which is really what's going to happen in terms of the timeline. Will this congressional committee be able to find something that's more smoking than the smoking guns we already know about? And will they be able to do that before the midterm elections? Because we know, obviously, Time is of the essence, and if Republicans take control of the House, then this committee will be shut down immediately. Okay, so what kind of penalties are Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows facing for not showing up for their subpoenas? I know Bannon has been pretty strident about his opposition to this. Meadows was initially cooperating and then rescinded that cooperation. So what are they facing here? So they're facing potentially uh, some time in prison. I think the maximum in this case is a year and some fines. And so what happens, we've talked about this a little bit, is that first the congressional committee votes to say we're referring this particular situation for criminal contempt. Then the full House votes. Then the Department of Justice makes an assessment. We know that the Department of Justice is, in fact, trying Steve Bannon for criminal contempt. And we don't know. We're not that far along yet with respect to Mark Meadows. Okay, Jessica, I know we talked a lot about a lot of these things over the course of this past year. There were a number of post-election lawsuits that challenged the results of that election from 2020. Some of them, or a lot of them, took place in 2020 itself, between the time of the election and the turn of the new year. But that story kind of spilled over into 2021. So, Jessica, remind us, what is the record in terms of the win-loss record there? And are they still happening nearly a year into the Biden administration? So yes and no. I wrote a column about this, and by one estimate, President Trump and his allies won zero of these lawsuits and lost 40 of these lawsuits. Of course, there's different ways of counting what is included in these particular post-election lawsuits. But I think I described it as a belly flop into a pool of nothing but concrete because these have not been successful for the reason that there was no widespread fraud in the 2020 election. And you asked me, you know, basically, are they continuing? And in fact, these lawsuits are continuing only really with respect to a different iteration, which is there are some potential sanctions that the lawyers who brought these suits are going to face. And then there's the other kind of post-election lawsuit, which isn't exactly what we were just talking about, but President Trump's pressure campaign uh, in Georgia, where he's telling the Secretary of State, basically, find me some more votes. And that's not Trump or his allies bringing a suit. That's, in fact, uh, people investigating the former president for a potential criminal conduct. And that case is continuing as well. Alrighty then. So the midterm elections are coming on fast. So how realistic is it that Republicans run out the clock on this investigation, given that it is common knowledge that the opposition party tends to gain congressional seats in the midterms? I know you mentioned that a little bit before, but what are the odds on that, you think? So, you know, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, there's no way that they can complete this investigation, I think, by the midterms, only because People are being recalcitrant. People just are not responding to subpoenas. On the other hand, as I kind of alluded to, my sense is 
we already know a lot, and for me, it's plenty damaging. The question really is whether or not there will be additional criminal charges. And that in part just depends on whether or not some of these last witnesses can in fact or will in fact come in and talk. I know that the committee at this point has said we're going to ramp up our efforts and we're going to start the more public part of our investigation soon. Right. And just a little bit of crystal ball talk here, Jessica. What do you think will happen to that investigation and the legacy of this event as it will be taught going forward if Republicans do regain the majority in 2022? I cannot escape the conclusion, Joe. I think that people are just going to view this through a partisan lens, and I hate to keep saying that, but I think Democrats will say, thank goodness this investigation took place. I can't believe people aren't more outraged about what was uncovered. And I think a lot of Republicans will say, witch hunt, you should have moved on. Or some Republicans will quietly say, I'm glad that ended because what was coming out was not particularly beneficial. But I just can't escape the idea that this will really be viewed through a partisan lens. All right. And before we move on, two other bits of fallout from the insurrection is that Trump was quickly impeached by the House and acquitted again in the Senate for his role in the insurrection, making him the only president to be impeached twice. And that's only in one four year term. And in some ways, Jessica, the biggest result was Donald Trump's ban from several social media platforms, including Twitter. The man governed by Twitter for his entire term, and although he still holds significant power and influence in the Republican Party, the social media silence is absolutely deafening. Any final thoughts on that, Jessica? I kind of like the silence between you and me. I could remain silent for this particular question if you prefer. So I think that this is going to be one of the things that we increasingly need to tackle, and Joe, we've talked about it, which is information that is put out over social media because it's increasingly how so many people get their information. And we've had a lot of people over the past, not just year, but before that, come on the podcast and talk about misinformation and disinformation and what we do with respect to private corporations like social media corporations. So my really my quick takeaway right now is... This is just the beginning of our reckoning with how to try and deal with information flows and assure that people do get accurate information. Technology does move much faster than our lawmakers' ability to deal with it. So, Jessica, let's move on. Another really, really big story from 2021 was the pullout of Afghanistan from the U.S. military. The United States military entered Afghanistan in the autumn of 2021 in the aftermath of the September 11th terrorist attacks of that year with the goal of deposing the Taliban regime that ruled that country at that time. The simmering conflict dragged on for two decades and three presidential administrations until the Trump administration signed what was called the Doha Agreement, which outlined the timeline for an eventual pullout by April of 2021. The Biden administration extended that until the end of summer, and despite withering criticism and some harrowing videos of Afghanis falling off military transport planes after takeoff, he was true to his word. He did pull us out of Afghanistan. It's hard to know the eventual consequences from this event until the next presidential election cycle, and that's if Biden decides to run for re-election in 2024. Polls show that a majority of Americans were in support of the pullout from Afghanistan, but they were unsatisfied with the manner in which it was implemented. Republicans will no doubt make major hay about this if Biden does run again, but it's hard to know exactly how that will play. It will be three years in the rearview mirror by that point, but an elephant never forgets, Jessica, if you see what I did there. So, Jessica, what are your thoughts on this whole mess? It is not a laughing matter, but what are your thoughts? 
So my thoughts are that actually we had two great guests that you booked, Joe, come in and talk about this. And I feel like what I know, I really learned in large part from them. And my sense is that this was always going to be some version of a failure. And Biden probably tried to make this the least fail of a failure possible, if that makes any sense. But this was always going to be a disaster. I don't think I'll ever get those images of the people trying to cling to the planes um, to leave Afghanistan out of my head, or at least I don't hope that I do, because it's a problem if you forget something like that. And um, I, I think it's one of these really complicated foreign policy issues where even some of the experts were just divided about what was appropriate here. Yeah, perhaps it was the least bad option, Jessica. But let's move on enough with Afghanistan. That brings us to topics we covered extensively from 2021, which are new, highly restrictive abortion laws out of Texas and the state of Mississippi. Texas's SB8 went into effect on September the 1st of this year, and Mississippi's law is before the current court. So after Mitch McConnell's power play, there is a strong 6-3 to three majority on the court. It seems to me that the writing is on the wall when it comes to abortion rights in America, is it not, Jessica? It is. I hope we're still doing this podcast in December 2022. And one of our year recaps, I think, will be how Roe v. Wade was overturned or how it was completely gutted and eviscerated and all but overturned. But I can't imagine any option other than those two options at this point. Okay, so we're not quite there yet. Now, there have been a number of challenges to that Texas law. So where does it currently stand? So this challenges to the Texas law, it's actually very much in the weeds. So what I'll give people is what I hope is a helpful update, that the Supreme Court basically said, you can sue abortion providers, but you can only sue these medical board professionals, these members of the Texas state government who work for the medical board. And that suit is now ongoing. That suit has now gone back to the lower courts. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. I think it's worthy of maybe its own episode, but I'll say that suit is now continuing in the lower courts. My big takeaway is that the court basically did two things. In September, by allowing this law to go into effect, they, with silence, really overruled Roe, at least in Texas. The other thing is, by saying that the challenge to this law, we've talked about why it's procedurally strange because it outsources enforcement to private individuals, that the challenge to this law in allowing abortion providers to only sue members of the Texas Medical Board, they really have opened up, I think, a huge Pandora's box. And now other governors in other states will try and, I think, mimic this. We already know that the governor in California is saying, well, okay, then let's pass a similar law when it comes to restricting guns. And if there's no one left to challenge, then we can implement a constitutionally questionable law as well. So this is something where we're going to be following both the aspect of continued ability for women to have access to reproductive choice. And we will also be following the legal aspects dealing with laws that are designed essentially to evade federal judicial review. Okay, Jessica, and as for Mississippi, the Mississippi case before the current court is a challenge to what they call the Gestational Age Act. That's from 2018. Now, we will find about the Mississippi case. When exactly is at the end of the term next summer? 
I think that that will be. Uh, now, it could come earlier, but I think we're going to hear an answer to that case, which, of course, is the case that actually directly challenges Roe v. Wade, and that's the reason that so many of us think Roe v. Wade will be overturned or gutted. I suspect we'll hear about that case the last week of June or the first week of July, and um, that will be a, a huge week, legally speaking. Okay, so hypothetically speaking, what will abortion rights in America look like after Roe v. Wade is overturned, as it seems that it will likely be? Governors like Gavin Newsom has said things like he intends to turn California into a so-called abortion sanctuary state. So what do you think that would look like? So we know that, you know, to the first part of your question, I think that the country will look like a patchwork. I mean, in blue states, women will have access to abortions. In red states, they won't. And obviously, that's a huge division in this country, depending on where you live. In terms of the second part of your question, you know, what does it look like to have a sanctuary state? It looks like allocating funds to allow people to come and obtain abortions in this state. I know we talked a lot about other Supreme Court stories this year, Jessica. So what were the other highlights for you as an expert of the court? So highlights or lowlights, depending on your perspective. You know, one of the things that we talked about a lot, and I'm really proud that we did, is the so-called shadow docket or the emergency docket or the rocket docket, where there are appeals to the Supreme Court. These used to be fairly few and far between and really focused in large part on death penalty cases where obviously time is of the essence. And now there are so many more appeals to the emergency docket. And we talked about a couple of those. I mean, dealing with COVID restrictions and uh, religious burdens to those restrictions. We talked about the eviction moratorium. And even when it comes to President Biden's vaccine mandates, those have been moved from the emergency docket to the regular calendar. So my story for, for this particular Supreme Court year it's a really, really conservative Supreme Court. And we've talked to Linda Greenhouse just recently. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation about the Supreme Court. And we talked to Jay Willis about the Supreme Court. And I think we just we have to watch that shadow docket. We're going to talk about it more next year for sure. Okay, Jessica, so that's all the big SCOTUS news from this year, at least that was worthy of covering on our show. That brings us to our next topic. This is a number of verdicts and several very high-profile trials that took place this year. Some of them are related, although not in a direct way. Tensions were already high after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25, 2020, when police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shot and paralyzed Jacob Blake. And it was into the subsequent protests that Kyle Rittenhouse took the Smith & Wesson MP15 rifle he used to kill two people and wound another person. The conviction of the three men for the murder of Ahmad Arbery was completely unrelated, but still part of the same thread of racism and violence in the United States. Looking back at these trials, Derek Chauvin is in jail currently for murdering George Floyd. Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, and their friend William Roddy Bryan are in jail for the murder of Arbery. And Kyle Rittenhouse is a free man. These cases all had a lot of complexities. There are events, there are witnesses, there are varying capabilities of prosecution and defense teams and judges all across our country. So what can we take away from all of these three cases, Jessica? I know that's a big question. A really big question, and I'm glad that we devoted separate episodes to these cases because obviously they deserve separate conversations. You know, in terms of what we take away, I think I'll probably echo something that I said before, which is that in some ways, no one case, no two cases, no three cases 
can stand for all that ails a criminal justice system. And so we need to be careful about taking too much away from these cases. On the other hand, I think what we see is that we're in a moment where I really do believe that juries might be looking at what police officers and in some cases private citizens do and really maybe shifting their focus on what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. And obviously this is all playing against the backdrop of some really serious reckoning when it comes to injustices in our criminal justice system. All right. Another recent case found actor Jesse Smollett guilty for filing a false police report in Chicago after he alleged that he was the victim of a hate crime on January 29th of 2019, before the pandemic even got rolling, Jessica. This doesn't help the cases of those who are legitimate victims of hate crime, but false accusations are part of what the justice system is for. How did the Smollett case reflect in our judicial system, do you think? I think that it worked. I mean, I think it shows that jurors can look at cases and they take their jobs really seriously and they look at the facts of that particular case, they look at the law and they apply that. And in this case, I think, again, we should be careful that this case shouldn't stand for more than it does. It, From my perspective, the jury came to the correct decision and I'm, I'm glad that they did. If there's one thing that we saw in, I think, the majority of the cases, not every case, of course, jurors are really being very careful about their decisions. Certainly, we can point to situations where we might have uh, disagreements, but I think that if we were about to talk about the Ghislaine Maxwell case, that was a jury that asked a lot of questions, spent a lot of time in the deliberations, and we see them being quite careful. All right, Jessica, the last two cases from 2021, the big marquee cases we're going to discuss, involve sex trafficking. Uh, Musician R. Kelly was arrested in July of 2019, but his case was delayed due to the COVID pandemic. On September 27th of this year, he was found guilty on all counts for a long-running pattern of sexual acts with underage girls. And that brings us to the breaking legal news of the week, Jessica, the conviction of Ghislaine Maxwell, you just mentioned her a second ago, for sex trafficking tied to the deceased financier and sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. So, Jessica, this is breaking news just the past couple of days. What charges were facing Maxwell? Well, she was charged with six different federal counts, and she was basically charged with being part of this criminal sex enterprise where she enticed these young girls to give Jeffrey Epstein, you know, quote unquote, massages that they turned sexual, and that she not just enticed the girls, but she really groomed them, and in some cases actually participated in the abuse herself. So again, it amounted to six different federal charges. Okay, and how did the jury rule on those six charges? So the jury found that she was guilty on all but count two. So she was found guilty on five of the six charges. Okay, and what kind of case did the prosecution have in the absence of Epstein? He's the big 8,000-pound gorilla in this room. He died by apparent suicide while incarcerated and awaiting trial in 2019. So the prosecution's case, I think, really depended on these four women who came forward and said we were victims not just of Jeffrey Epstein, not just of his actions, but also of Ghislaine Maxwell's actions, that none of this happens without her, that she in so many ways, because she's a socialite, because she looks kind of acceptable, for lack of a better way of describing it, that she gives Epstein cover, that because she's there 
she allows all of this to happen. Again, she's finding these girls, she's grooming them, she's making the appointments for these massages that become inappropriate and in fact criminal. And in some cases, as we said, actually taking part in the abuse herself. So the prosecution's case really did hinge on those four women who were able to come forward. Okay, now how about the defense? How did they approach her defense? So the defense was, you know, in my mind, a little bit of a typical blame the victim. Uh, the defense said a couple things. One, they said, well, she's just being charged because Jeffrey Epstein is dead and you just want somebody to try and blame here. The defense also called an expert to say that the victim's memories were questionable. And the defense also said that the victims uh, were really motivated by money, pretty clear that the jury didn't buy the vast majority of what the defense was trying to sell. Okay, so provided that Maxwell does wind up in jail, do you think she will be the only person to serve time in Jeffrey Epstein's complicated web of sex crimes? You know, I really don't know. Somebody who's been following this case really closely said to me, you know, will she try and give information for a reduced sentence? I think it's just too late for that. You know, I think the ship really sailed on that. But Prince Andrew has a hearing, I think, the first week of 2022. So we'll be following it. I just don't know the answer to that right now. Okay, Jessica, time will tell. And finally, one simply can't talk about the year 2021 without discussing the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. This year was the first calendar year to take place entirely during the pandemic. Americans were able to get vaccinated and some eventually even received a booster in the fall. I know I did. As of today, about 63% of Americans have been fully vaccinated and about 74% have had at least one dose of one of the three available vaccines in our country. Over the course of the year, Mask and vaccine mandates were imposed, they were challenged, they were suspended, and in some cases they were reinstated. So with the highly transmissible Omicron variant burning like wildfire throughout the country this holiday season, Jessica, how do we even wade into this mess? Joe, I really don't know. I know that I've spent a lot of time reading up on what the experts have said, and I think it's going to be a really rough beginning of the year. And I'm very concerned about our healthcare workers. I'm concerned about infrastructure. I'm concerned about people's mental health. I'm concerned about what happens in the short term. From the experts that I've seen, the long-term outlook looks much better than what's in store again for the first kind of six to eight weeks of the new year. Okay, when it comes to the legal realm, however, the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of public safety when it comes to vaccines in the past, but it may not continue on that tack with the current 6-3 to three conservative majority. This court has shown in previous decisions that it is more sympathetic to religious exemptions for various things, and that may set it in opposition to Biden's mandates currently being challenged. They include vaccine mandates for more than 10 million healthcare workers and mandates for companies with more than 100 employees. Now, Jessica, I remain stupid that able-bodied people are refusing to get vaccinated, but here we are. Where are we on the mandates and the challenges? So the court is going to hear challenges to Biden's two vaccine mandates, or a, in one case, it's really a mandate to test or vaccinate the first week of the new year on January 7th. And in both cases, we'll talk about this in a lot more detail, but in both cases, what the court is really looking at 
is how much power these executive agencies have. In one case, the agency being OSHA, in one case, the agency being the Department of Health and Human Services. And what the court is really asking is, did they step out of their lanes? Did they take power that Congress didn't give them when they implemented these vaccine mandates? All right. Thank you for that, Jessica. But one last thing before we go, if we had proper in memoriam music for passing judgment, we'd cue it right about now. There are some notable deaths of 2021, and they include broadcaster Larry King died on January 23rd. He was 87. Publisher and First Amendment cult hero Larry Flint died of heart failure on February the 10th. Right wing radio provocateur Rush Limbaugh died on February 17th. He was 70. Former Watergate fall guy G. Gordon Liddy died on March 30th at the age of 90. Former Vice President Walter Mondale died on April 19th at 93. Former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld died on June 29th, 2021 at the age of 88. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell died on October 18th at 84. Former Senator and Presidential Candidate Bob Dole died on December 5th, just a few weeks ago at 98. And just this week, former Nevada Senator and Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid died at the age of 82. That was just a couple days ago on December 28th. But Jessica, the one hardest for me wasn't a politician. He wasn't a lawyer. It was Michael K. Williams. He was most famous for playing Omar Little, a gay shotgun-wielding gangster who robbed drug dealers on HBO's show The Wire. And he was President Barack Obama's favorite character on that show, The Wire. Now, The Wire is what I believe to be the best television show of all time ever. Williams died of an accidental drug overdose at the age of 54 on September 6th. So rest in peace, all you politicos, all you actors, and anyone else. Jessica, we've got mere hours left before the year rolls over. So here's to hoping we don't have any big breaking stories to cover in the next few hours. But if something does happen... We'll be here to talk about it. It's been an honor to make this show with you, Jessica, and I can't wait to discuss things with you in 2022. Absolutely. We have so much to talk about next year. And Joe, I will go back and add one of the recent deaths that actually hit me, which was, as you know, one of my heroes, Joan Didion, just an amazing journalist, an amazing writer. She had an uncanny way of putting her finger on the pulse of what was happening and, frankly, so many times what we didn't even know was happening until she pointed it out to us. And I remember reading her writing for the first time, and it really was one of those moments where you thought that you were looking at things clearly, and then you realized, in fact, you were looking at a black and white picture, and all of a sudden the color flips on. So I wanted to mention that as well. And we do have so many more stories already planned for 2022. Wishing you, Joe, the happiest new year, and to all of our listeners. Absolutely, Jessica. We wish everyone a happy, safe, and healthy holiday. We will talk to you next year at The Dad Joke Ghost. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok sometimes at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In-Depth Day. And my music podcast is back with brand new episodes. You can find over 220 of those episodes at joearmstrong.com slash in-depth day. You can find this podcast, that's Passing Judgment, on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Old Lang Syne, everyone. Happy New Year. We will talk to you soon. Take care.